today, uh, Pastor David and Cindy are not here, but we do have a guest speaker uh, today, and it is Joey Chen, who is the lead pastor from Sunset Church in San Francisco. Joey, you may not know, he's behind the scenes. He's been a foundation for this church. He's, a, he's on the faculty at Redeemer City to City, which David and Cindy have been going to over the last year, and he's been teaching them, uh, mentoring them, and has become a good friend of David and Cindy, and by that, to our church. So I would like to welcome you today, Joey Chen. Come on up. Thank you, Ed. That was a very nice and overly uh, positive view of myself, one more than I have of myself. And I, I just, yeah, I got to know David and Cindy through City to City, and it's been a joy to get to know them over the last year. We spent a lot of time chatting about ministry. Got to chat last year about, trying to figure this out as I'm talking, uh, them hiring their first uh, staff member, which is now Christina. And so I remember talking with them, praying with them about that. And it's cool to meet her and to meet you guys in the church here, uh, see how God's been fruitful here in the Bay Area. Uh, as a pastor of an older established church, our church has uh, been around for a little over 40 years. It's a joy to see church plants and the excitement and joy, but also that I know there's challenges. So I just want to encourage and just thank all of you who are serving in so many various ways, a part of current here. I know some of you are serving, even just buying donuts. I know some of you are driving that trailer, uh, getting here at you know 8.30 in the morning, setting up and uh, for those of you who are part of the various ways, I got to meet some of the tech team too. Thank you for not only helping this church, you are an extension of the kingdom of God, reaching people, trying to expand his kingdom, making Jesus known here. And so thank you for being a witness here. Uh, before we get into our passage, uh, maybe you come to church today just looking at the news this past morning. CNN had a very uh, dramatic headline with all the tragedies happening just with the last weekend uh, in Gilroy, also last night in El Paso and in Dayton. I went to college right next to Dayton, so it's a little more sensitive for myself as I saw that. And so maybe your life is impacted by those uh, things, maybe just seeing that. Maybe you come personally uh, with some chaos. And so let me just read from Psalm 46 and just pray for us this morning, even before we get into our passage, just to guide us towards trusting and seeing Jesus. From Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Would you pray with me? God, Father, we come to you aware of a lot of the turmoil and tragedy that happens, and maybe just because we're more aware of it, Father, but it's, it's often all around us even when we don't see it. We have friends here who come with personal turmoil, personal wars that overwhelm, 
And we pray that as we spend time uh, in your presence this morning, that we would sense your nearness, your love for us, and your son Jesus. We can see and believe that the wars will cease. All the, the fighting and turmoil, every tear will be wiped clean because of the victory of Jesus as we just sung. I pray that his death and resurrection would be a reality that we not only know about, but experience and find peace and comfort in this morning. Pray that you would get glory from our time in your word and that you would be understood and that you would be loved and that we would feel the love that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been here at Current in a series on the book of Proverbs, looking at wisdom for life. I, I love the book of Proverbs. I love wisdom literature. went through it last year, actually, in our church. Uh, went through Ecclesiastes a number of years ago, Song of Solomon, too. It's, Song of Solomon is a very challenging book, but a really good one for wisdom and relationships and sexuality. But Proverbs, being one of the most famous passages on wisdom, it, it really helps us understand how to engage in the world in a way that would make God known and glorified. But just to distinguish the difference between just general wisdom, because a lot of people are wise even if they don't know Christ, and distinctly Christian wisdom is that when it comes to Christian wisdom, it's more than just what you know. It's more than just what you do. Christian wisdom is distinct because it comes from who you know. It's ultimately, as we see throughout the book of Proverbs especially, about a person. That's why one of the most important repeated phrases in the book of Proverbs is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It, wisdom comes, right knowing, right doing in the world comes not just for gathering information, not just from your behavior being aligned rightly, but ultimately about being in relationship with the true and living God and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Wisdom is relational. That's especially true when it comes to our topic today. We're going to look at the topic of self-control. In your series, you've gone through the first nine books, or first nine chapters excuse me, of Proverbs, and those are easier to go through in succession, but after you get to chapter 10, you'll see almost every other stanza is a different topic, and so one of the ways that look at Proverbs is to look at different topic, looked at some of your series, you looked at friendship, you looked at pride, you looked at different topics, and if you've ever wondered why the book of Proverbs after chapter 9 is kind of just chaos and all over the place, I used to think, why is it that way? Why would the, the author arrange it in such kind of confusing, disordered ways, and I think it's almost teaching us something with that disorder. Wisdom in life is not so easy. It's not always easy to sort out, and sometimes it comes with a little bit of work. And so as we look at different topics in Proverbs, you're going to have to look at various places in the book and also throughout the Bible. But we're going to look at self-control. And self-control, we're going to see in the Bible, is more than just saying no to the extra helping of dessert, although that's really helpful. It's more than just behavioral modification for acting uh, appropriately in different contexts. It's a deeply spiritual issue. It has ramifications for all parts of our lives. Now, when I mention self-control, most of us probably begin to think immediately with regards to food, to drink, to sex, which are important. But I hope as you're thinking about this, you'll, you'll realize self-control is important not just in the most obvious areas of our lives, but it's actually important for all aspects of our lives. When you look at list of vices throughout the Bible, you'll notice all of those come from good desires that are out of control. And so when it comes to worry or anger or finances, these are areas where we need to have self-control. Even when it comes to our attention, when I was thinking about preparing 
this message on self-control, I began to ask God, what's the area of my life I need greater control in? In fact, I was even challenged by my mother this morning who came by. Uh, my parents uh, just retired to Walnut Creek, and so they often go to church with me. Uh, they're going with my wife and my two kids to my church in San Francisco, and she was rebuking me this morning for looking at my phone as my kids are there at the table. But I, I prayed, and I, I realized maybe one of the areas of control that I lack is attention, presence. Even as I was preparing this sermon, I was sitting down to write, and I got a buzz on my Apple Watch telling me of a text. And so from that moment, I looked to my phone because I don't really like texting off my watch. And then as I opened my phone, I got a calendar notification that I had a meeting in the next 30 minutes, which I had to prepare for. And so uh, I went to my computer to prepare for that. And then I realized I hadn't checked my email in the last hour, and so I should do that. And then my friend sent me a cool article, and it was a link to something else. It reminded me I forgot to post the picture of my child on Instagram the other day. I hadn't read the news yet, so I opened Apple News, and I got distracted by a BuzzFeed quiz this past week, designing a house, and by choosing a different arrangement for the house, it would tell me what Simpsons character I was, and I got Marge Simpson, which made me really think my entire life. Maybe you're like me. Self-control is important in so many areas of our lives. Maybe you're like me, maybe attention, our use of technology, well, we tend to think of it as neutral, really is an area where we need to give some greater self-control to. In a 2016 article, uh, I think this has probably increased since then, but in 2016, it was noted that from research, we check our smartphones 81,500 times each year, which means you check it on average 4.3 times, uh, or every 4.3 minutes that we are awake which means during the sermon, you will look at your phone nine times or more if you don't really like what I'm saying. Steve Jobs, uh, he certainly knew of the concerns with regards to attention and technology. Uh, a reporter asked him when he first released the original iPad in 2010, he asked him, your kids must love the iPad, to which he responded, they've never used it. I control and I limit how much technology my kids use. What we will learn today in looking at wisdom is that we grow wise when we become self-controlled. A wise person will learn to master themselves. We're going to look at a brief definition of self-control, look at some of the dangers of an out-of-control person, and then spend some time looking at how we develop self-control from Scripture. Let's look at the definition first. Uh, it's helpful to realize when you look at self-control, there's a positive and a negative way to look at it. Typically, we think about it in terms of a negative perspective. Both are helpful in understanding a definition of self-control. Negatively, it's restraining. It's saying no. And so you restrain, you, you hold back your passions, your desires, your appetites. And so if you look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, it says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And so you're in a heated argument. The other person says something that pushes you over the edge, and you are about to let it rip, but you restrain yourself. My wife and I, we are both very verbal and very volatile people. One of the areas that we've needed to grow in and over the years is uh, PDA. When I mean PDA, it's not public displays of affection, it's public displays of anger. Uh, we are both, over the time, God has been working on us. One time, my I said something to just, I know, you, you know when you're married, 
what will really annoy and really push someone's button. And I, I, I pushed, and my wife took her purse. And at the time, we just got back from vacation. She bought a very nice purse, and she just chucked it into the middle of the street. She was so angry. And I wasn't even concerned. I was like, there goes all that money. It's just flying into the street. She didn't restrain herself. I didn't restrain myself from pushing her buttons. Or you look at Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Self-control is better than actually military might because it's actually more difficult to take control of yourself than actually many of the accomplishments we can do outside of ourselves. Peter the Great, he's a Russian czar in the late 17th century. He's known for Russian reform to technology, education, military rule. He said once, I have conquered an empire, but I have yet to conquer myself. If you look at Proverbs 25, verse 16, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. You open the freezer, you, you see that gallon of ice cream, and you have it because you had a party and you had it left over, and you're tempted to take the whole thing out with a spoon, and you restrain yourself a little bit because you grab the whole pint instead. <laughs> Maybe you have the experience. I remember as a kid, you know, you, you went unrestrained during Halloween, and you took a whole pillowcase, and you just, you knew the right places to get whole candy bars, and you got a whole bag of candy, and you didn't tell your parents how much you got, and you just sat down, and you just went at that bag, and you realized too much candy is not a good thing, much like the honey in that proverb. That's a negative way to look at defining self-control. It's restraining. There's also a positive way. Negatively, it's turning away from something, Positively, self-control is also about knowing what to choose, choosing rightly in the right time, in the right place. Pastor Tim Keller defines a positive definition of self-control this way. Self-control is the ability to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. At any given moment, because within yourself, your desires are properly ordered. Properly ordered desires. Saying yes to the right things, the most important things, at the right time. Think about your physical appetite. And one of the things I enjoy, I, I, I first discovered a number of years ago when they only had one shop in New York City in Manhattan was Shake Shack. And now it's everywhere. I know it's down here. I'm tempted to go there after this. But as good as Shake Shack is, if you have it every single day of your life, satisfying your burger cravings all the time, your life, not just your physical life, your entire life becomes out of control. It's a little dated now. Remember that documentary, Supersize Me? Morgan Spurlock, he ate at McDonald's uh, three times a day, trying to get through every single item at least once. He consumed an average of 5,000 calories every single day during the experiment. And during that entire month period, the 32-year-old at the time gained 24 pounds, 13% in body mass, his cholesterol, I don't remember what it was beforehand, but it increased to 230, not a good thing, and he experienced mood swings, sexual dysfunction, fat accumulation in his liver, and it actually took him 30 days to accumulate all that, but it took him 14 months to actually reduce all the weight he gained during the experiment, eating a vegan diet. I don't know which is worse, eating McDonald's 30 days or eating a vegan diet for 14 months, but <laughs> sorry to offend any vegans. It's also true of how you speak, rightly choosing at the right time. Just as I mentioned earlier, you could choose to lash out at the right moment and try and feel like you're getting even. 
or your desire to be a peacemaker, to maintain relationship could take over. Your tongue can be out of control or it can be in control. You can lash out and vent out of control at the wrong time, gossip at the wrong time, and not only will relationships be broken, eventually lives can be destroyed. Self-control is restraining. It's also choosing rightly. That's our definition. Let's look at dangers. Kind of alluded to some already, but I think one of the most helpful images for me in Proverbs is the danger explained in Proverbs 25, 28. It says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. When we read this, a city without walls, we tend to think very positively about that place. It's some place we want to go to. It seems welcoming without walls. But for most of history, a city without walls was never a good thing. It was a disaster. It was chaos waiting to happen. Remember in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, when this Jewish man is in Babylon in exile, and he hears back reports from Jerusalem that the walls are down. Nehemiah, he cries, he weeps for days. Why? Well, city walls were essential to defining the city's boundaries and also safety. People lived together within the walls for protection from people who would do harm to them. Because without walls, you're inviting people to pillage your area, and within walls, you encourage flourishing. That's when business can occur. That's when justice systems can be built. That's when an economy can be developed. Civilization thrives within walls when there's threats of attack from the outside. Now, that may not seem so immediately obvious to us because we don't live in cities with walls. But you know that feeling? Maybe this is more personal for us. When you're lying down at the end of a long day and your mind's kind of going through, racing through that past day, maybe thinking about what you're doing tomorrow, maybe thinking about the last-minute things you should have taken care of, and you just remember, you forgot to lock your front door. Now, if you're married and you come to that conclusion, your wives will kick your husband to go do something about that, right? But imagine, and that's already hard enough, you forget to lock your door. Or in San Francisco, if you forget to lock your car door, it's probably a good thing because people won't break it then, right? So you probably just leave it open then. It doesn't really matter. My car has only been broken into when I try and secure it. Every time other time I leave it open, nothing ever happens to my car in San Francisco. But think about it. That's already kind of nervous, right? You forget to lock your door. But what if your home doesn't have a door? Just wide open in the front door. Will you be able to sleep? Or what if your house didn't have walls. It was just the, the frames there. Anyone could walk in. Anyone could see into your home, take whatever they wanted to whenever you weren't home or even when you were there. How would that make you feel to live in a home not only without a locked door, without a door, or maybe without walls, just everyone able to look in? That's why this metaphor is so powerful. A person without self-control is vulnerable, defenseless, unsafe. You can be pillaged by your own out-of-control desires, or you can be pillaged by outside desires tempting you. Because if your desires are not properly ordered, or you don't have the ability to restrain yourself when it should be necessary, you are a city, you are a home without a door, without a wall. Even if it's just a crack in the wall, think about it in terms of military defenses, right? If you've seen any kind of, kind of medieval movies, They'll try and find a weakness in the wall. It doesn't just require a part of the wall be down, just a weak spot. You can get in. 
They'll, they'll go after that. That's what it's like to have a lack of self-control. There's danger. Now, one of the areas I began to think about, I shared in my introduction, was that for me, it just has to do with my attention, my use of technology. So let me just apply it to myself. I'm preaching to myself, maybe helpful for you for a second, when it comes to the dangers of a lack of control with regards to my attention and my use of technology. I read not too long ago a man who worked as a trader for Goldman Sachs. And he was warned after six months of working there, because they're tracking his usage of his computer, his internet time, he had used in his six months 500 hours on Facebook, which averaged to be four hours a day. (laughs) Unwisely, you know what he did when he got that warning email from his company? He posted it to Facebook, and he writes this. I don't know, I mean, it's on TechCrunch, so I don't know if this is better or not. It sounds like this is fake, but I almost can believe it to be real. Not only am I surprised, he said, to be proud of this, but in addition, I found that to post it here and that losing my job worries me far less than losing Facebook ever could. Maybe not to that extreme, but how many of us, we just, those notifications just draw us in and we can't leave it alone. Or maybe, we, <laughs> this, is, this is the world we live in now, and this is, Reminiscent of maybe my only attention difficulties and a lack of control. We live in a world where we actually have to warn people about a different kind of DWIs, driving while intoxicated. A teenager was driving to visit her grandfather in Utah, and she ran a red light, and police checked her phone and discovered right as she was running that red light, she had sent a text within seconds of the accident. In that accident, she broke her ankle, she broke her right arm, she couldn't walk and had to go through therapy for six months. And she said this of the accident, I, I tried really, really hard not to. Th- then it got to the point where I would only do it, check her phone, once every five minutes. Uh, I would rarely do it. It got to the point where when I was alone in the car, I would do it. She said, I don't know, it's just so addicting, I just can't put it down. And within a year of this accident... She did it again, and she slammed into the back of a semi-truck, and amazingly, she left uninjured, but that's the lack of control with her use of her phone. Now, when I mention these things, I am not a technophobe. I, I love technology. I still, to my wife's disdain, I still like video games. Uh, I, you know, texting is a good way to communicate. It's fast. But all these tools, as helpful as they can be, I, I think we need to realize they're not inherently neutral. They have an ability. Actually, technology companies are designing them to be addicting for us. That's why they can get more money that way. They can design it to be unendingly attentive in drawing our attention to it again and again. We are living potentially in one of the most out-of-control times in our history when it comes to attention because of tech. Maybe you're not struggling in that particular way. You don't care. You don't really look at your phone. You're still using a flip phone. Does anyone here have a flip phone still? One person, you are my hero for today. I want to see this phone afterwards. I remember my first one. It was a, a StarTech, that, that Motorola one. I, I love that click when you opened it. My wife used a candy bar phone until like 2013. I was like, this is amazing. Get ran over by a car, and it still worked. And she continued to use it for a little bit because she could still receive phone calls on it. She refused to get a smartphone. But maybe you're not struggling that way. You're not struggling with attention. But there's other areas of our lives. Remember, self-control is not just in the ones that are most obvious. It's, it's in all aspects of our life. Maybe there's an area of your life where the walls are not necessarily all the way down, but there's a weakness. There's an opening. There's a crack. And Proverbs tells you 
tells all of us, if you're not self-controlled, there's potential to be pillaged, to be robbed of what matters most. There's potential for life to come to ruin when there's no self-control. Now, how do we develop it? Hopefully, we, we agree there's some danger. Most people see that if you're out of control in some aspect of your life, there's some danger. But where we most deviate, I think, is how do you get it? How do you develop it? And I think Scripture is unique in developing it because it, only, it gives us the only true, long-lasting way for true self-control to be developed. Maybe you're familiar with the social experiment from Walter Michel. He was a professor of psychology at Columbia. He's famous for that very iconic experiment, the marshmallow test. You've seen different iterations of this throughout history, throughout culture. He pioneered this. Basically, 50 years ago, he created a test uh, for five-year-olds trying to get them to respond to a marshmallow. He, he put a marshmallow in front of the kid and said to them, if you wait 15 minutes and you don't eat it, I'll give you a second one. And just seeing how they would respond and how they would wait or not wait told him a lot about the human condition, personality, uh, delays of gratification. Now, actually, that test was taken in a way, I don't think, because uh, Michel himself, even before he died at 88, expressed that most people took it the wrong way. He didn't intend it. Because most of us thought you could reduce his experiment to saying, well, if a kid didn't eat the marshmallow, they would have better relationships in life, they'd get better jobs in life. And so tons of parents want to do the marshmallow test on their three-year-olds to see if they're going to have a successful future. That's not actually what he intended. We like to do it that way because it seems like so cut and dry, so black and white. If you eat the marshmallow, you're going to have a messed up life. If you don't eat the marshmallow, you have a great life, right? And so you want to do that. But he actually meant the experiment to test how flexible people are because he wanted to test people's psychology, their, their flexibility and their personality. He used it to test kids to, to develop self-control. So he would tell that kid, imagine that, that marshmallow, that cookie. He later used Oreo cookies. That was something disgusting. And he would see how the kid, if they were able to imagine it, something different, they developed a greater sense of self-control, the ability to grow in delayed satisfaction. Your destiny isn't determined by a marshmallow, whether you eat it or not. But part of what that experiment teaches us, I think we can agree with, is that self-control can be taught. There are ways in which we can grow in it. That's why Scripture tells us, and again and again, not just Old Testament, New Testament, to pursue it, to grow in it. But I think where we will disagree, biblically, I think, is how. Because I, I don't think it's just merely strategies to trick ourselves. It's not merely mental exercises. It's not merely behavior modification. Michelle's basic conclusion is that you can draw inner strength teaching yourselves techniques to distract yourself, to distance yourself, to gain control. If you're tempted to eat a cookie, imagine that cookie's a scorpion and you maybe won't eat it. But that's not enough. That only works with smaller things, but imagine someone who has severe addictions or a completely out-of-control life. See, the Bible shows us, and not only in Proverbs, throughout the New Testament, that self-control is not ultimately from within. There's a sense in which you're responsible, yes, but the power doesn't come from within. It's not just will, power. It actually points us to a source of power outside of ourselves not our will that gives the power. It's actually from above. Biblical self-control comes from setting your whole self, your imagination, your heart. And when the Bible talks about heart, it's not how we talk about it. Uh, we use heart to talk about feelings, emotions. That's part of the heart biblically, but heart 
uh, actually one of the words is bowels translated in the, in the Bible because it's the deepest seed of who you are. Your heart is almost synonymous to who you are. So you have to set your heart on Christ. In other words, it's not enough if you want self-control to learn how to restrain yourself from within. You must learn how to set yourself, your whole being, on something outside of yourself. Not only because we're generally not strong enough, but also because your desires cannot be completely removed. You find people who are trying to recover from alcoholism. And so they go to AA and they develop an addiction to cigarettes and donuts because that's what they have there. You just transfer your desires to something else because no person can ever be a desireless person. And so having self-control is not just about behavior modification. It's not just from inside yourself. It has to come from a source much longer lasting, much more powerful, setting yourself on Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I like how one pastor, author, Jerry Bridges says it. He says, self-control is not control by oneself through one's own willpower, but rather control of oneself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where Paul says in his book to Titus, he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself gave himself for us to have redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's spend time anchoring ourselves in that Titus passage as we conclude. Because I think it gives us a very, very clear picture of what Proverbs is talking about in terms of developing self-control a more explicit one with regards to Christ. Now, we, if you want to gain self-control, you actually have to look at Christ, looking back at His grace accomplished for us, looking forward to the grace that He has promised and guaranteed for us. You have to look back at the grace of God. As we sung in these songs and the wonderful cross and all these, these wonderful songs of praise man led us in, they're, they're, they're shaping our imagination. They're starting us off remembering that Christ has defeated sin. It's already been defeated, accomplished. To look at that grace of salvation that has been accomplished and achieved by Jesus. Self-control comes when you belong to that good news about Jesus. When you see the beauty of the gospel and you cling to it, and you remind yourself, and you dwell in it. It's important because even Christians, we, we tend to sometimes look at developing self-control in exactly the same way as anyone else without Jesus would do it. So we look at Jesus as our Savior for eternity, and we say, well, I've got to develop self-control on my own. That's not how we develop self-control. If, if Titus, what Paul writes to him is true here, he's telling him, you can say no, you can, you can reject worldly passions because of the grace of God that has already appeared. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 11. You have to dwell in that. We, we aren't saved by how we behave, and so we don't grow in Christ-likeness or self-control by how we behave ultimately. Self-control comes when you dwell on the beauty of the gospel. You revel in it. You sing about it. You, you think about it, and you begin to imagine it dominating your life. Think about it this way. 
and that's too cerebral for you. High school boys who never take care of themselves, right? They, they don't really care how they dress. They, they don't really care how they smell sometimes. They don't really care about how they're, you know, sleep, you know, going to bed at 2 a.m., waking up at 12. But you, you'll see a shift. Sometimes it doesn't happen in, in high school. But eventually, this high school boy will make a shift. He begins to wear deodorant. And it's when they start to buy Axe, which is terrible, but they start to buy that at least. And then they start wearing better clothes. When I was in high school, I was wearing carpenter jeans, baggy jeans, and now everything's skinny. So it just doesn't matter what you wear, but they start to care. Stop wearing sweatpants. They start to care about how they smell, not just in terms of deodorant. They start wearing cologne. They start to swim in it. They, they don't just wear T-shirts that are, have holes all over the place. They wear a butt-down-down shirt. Why do they do this? Because they like a girl, right? They've set their heart. Their greatest desire has aligned something, and it begins to reorder all of their lives. Something outside of himself is beginning to draw his attention, his desires, his wants. Everything begins to be aligned. He never cared about where, what college he went to, what kind of job he would get. All of a sudden, he's like, I got to make money so I can get married to this girl. I got to have a job so I, she'll have a house. I mean, it begins to change this young man's life. If we want self-control, we have to look at the grace of God. That is what begins. That is what's most important. That begins to realign everything about how we think about our lives, our desires, our appetites, begin to be aligned to the person that matters most, Jesus. If we want self-control, we have to see that grace has already been given to us. Given to us. It's amazing. We also have to look forward to the hope of Jesus' return. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a future thing, too. It's been accomplished for us. It's also a future thing. His return is guaranteed. And if there's an, an urgency here, if you remember the, the parable of the, the bridegroom and the, 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 the women waiting in Matthew 25, there's a deadline. There's a coming. It's guaranteed. And that begins to realign your life. And so trivial matters, things in your life that you would give into, you would say one more to, begin to become less important. Friends, we become wise... You look at all the ways that you look at wisdom in the book of Proverbs. You also become wise and you need self-control. And I want to end with this thought. I was thinking about self-control because our culture wants self-control. If you look at a self-help, I, mean, I don't know how many bookstores are still around, but if you remember old bookstores and you go to a bookstore, they have a, a, a self-help area. Half the books there are about helping yourself with regards to control. And self-control, or out, a lack of it, is, is terrible for anyone in any part of their life. But think about it from a distinctly Christian perspective. Why self-control for the Christian is utterly important. And why Christians, people who surrender their lives, put Jesus first, we, this is so much more urgent for us. It's more than just our health, our job, our relationships at stake. I want you to realize this as we think about self-control. Self-control for the Christian is more vital because of what we have at stake. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Be careful how you walk, how you live, including your self-control. Don't be unwise, be wise, making the best use of the time. There's an urgency. The Christian knows what's that line. We, we, we know <laughs> giving our time to something, losing our attention, maybe just letting Netflix just play nonstop and autoplay again and again and again is not necessarily inherently going to hurt anyone. It's permissible to some degree, but if there's no self-control, maybe what's happening in our lives as a Christian is we're crowding out the ultimate. If we don't have self-control in all aspects of our lives, we're not growing in it, maybe what's happening is it's something is crowding out what's most important in your life so that the noisy things of our lives begin to keep us from the fruitfulness that God would intend for you and for your church. It would distract us from the mission that he's given to current church. See, without self-control, good things can begin to dominate so there's no time, no attention, no reflection on what's most important. Current church, if I can encourage you to think about this, don't let your zeal for Jesus be drowned out by trivial things. Don't let your love for Jesus become just background noise to less important things that seem so good at the moment. That your love for Jesus would become cold or apathetic because of trivial things that we get in our attention and our lives to. All around us is a spiritual battle. It really is about self-control because ultimately as people who follow Jesus, we know that there's the greatest treasure in Jesus and the greatest mission given to us by Jesus to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. May we become wise and grow in self-control. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful that your grace also covers our lack of control. And your forgiveness is found for those of us who had our consciences pricked aware of a lack of control that may be with regards to physical appetites like food or sleep even, sex. It could be what we give our mind to. There are all parts of our lives that need to be rightly ordered because you are first. And I pray that your spirit would provide not only conviction in this space, but also the grace to see that your love is greater than any failure of ours to control ourselves. And out of that great love for us, despite ourselves, you would desire to put you first and see all our desires properly arranged so that you would get worship and glory that you so deserve here in this church, here in this city, and to the ends of this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.